0: Objection to the rule. Your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm here today with my co-hosts Emily and Jasmine. How's it going, ladies? It's going okay. It's New Year's Eve we're recording right That's now, right? It yeah. is.
1: But we're Are actually we happy? we're do- <laughs> we're something. We're we're chugging along. Know. I'm
2: here. I'm present.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: that's pretty much it mm-hmm. New year's is typically like my favorite holiday like it's my time to go out and do stuff with friends and
1: mm, you're one of, of those
2: it. yeah
1: what the <laughs> hell new year's, new year's for me always feels like too much pressure oh, I like man. I sometimes have fun and sometimes it's just like um it, you know just you gotta you gotta upsetting. be a
2: good you gotta be a good curator of vibes, Emily. Oh so, god.
0: Make, what is night. this
1: high school? <laughs> <laughs> um anyway, but this will be airing I think is it January third? Is that the upcoming Sunday? Is that yeah, yeah, okay. that's correct? So yeah. So it'll be past everyone else will already have their New Year's over, we won't
0: be with you when the ball drops. So no, but, sure. but we will be able to wish <laughs> it, to it to you over. today. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But we will be able to wish it to you today. So hopefully you're going to do something fun this evening and um, close out this trash of 2020. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, let's get on with it. All right. So today we'll be talking about the new Pensation Station edition, Glow in the Dark Platypuses, the National Bomber's Girlfriend, and Refugees in Rohingya. I'm sorry, in Bangladesh. So let's go ahead and get started with our local news story. Emily, you're up.
1: All righty. This is a little bit of a long one, um, but hopefully a good one. So uh, or at least enjoyable to listen to. Um, So this story comes from a December 30th New York Times article by Christina Goldbaum titled New Train Hall Opens at Penn Station Echoing Buildings Former Glory. The article opens with some really great imagery. Uh, quote, for more than half a century, New Yorkers have trudged through the cramped platforms, dark hallways, and oppressively low ceilings of Pennsylvania Station, the busiest and perhaps most miserable train hub in North America. Entombed beneath Madison Square Garden, the station served six hundred and fifty thousand riders riders each weekday before the pandemic, or three times the number it was built to handle. Um, served, not serves. Um but as more commuters return to Penn Station next year, they, were, they will be welcomed by a new $1.6 billion train hall, complete with over an acre of glass skylights, art installations, and 92-foot high ceilings that Governor Andrew M. Cuomo, who championed the project, has likened, has likened to the majestic Grand Central Terminal. After nearly three years of construction, the new Moynihan Train Hall and the James A. Fa- uh, Farley Post Office building across 8th Avenue from Penn Station will open to the public on January 1st as a waiting room for Amtrak and Long Island Railroad passengers. Um, So tough luck, subway commuters. (laughs) Um, uh, That's my own little two cents on that. But um, so I was drawn to doing this story in particular for a couple a few different reasons. Uh, One, I actually studied architecture in college. So it's right up my alley in that sense. Um, Just FYI, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, also known as as SOM, led the design of the new train hall. Um, And they also did the One World Trade building. The second reason I wanted to do it was because I have played the commuter game through the hellscape that is Penn Station. So it feels personal in that sense. And uh, there's a bigger, more infamous historical element to the story that I find really interesting. And on that third note, um, quote, for decades, the huge undertaking uh, was considered an absolution of sorts for one of the city's greatest sins, the demolition in the 1960s of the original Penn Station building, an awe-inspiring structure that was a stately gateway to the country's economic powerhouse. The destruction of the station was a turning point in New York civic life. It prompted a fierce backlash among defenders of the city's architectural heritage, the creation of the Landmarks Preservation Commission, and renewed efforts to protect Grand Central Terminal." Um, and along with that, um, Jackie O got involved uh, in the efforts to save Grand Central, which I love So, who d- and who doesn't love Jackie O. So she's tied into the whole story too um yeah and this was all a story that i grew up hearing from my dad actually who was born and raised in the city he remembers playing in the old penn station as a kid and yep he totally taught me that the replacement of that space with the low ceiling dungeon that came after was a tragedy of architectural proportions and every time we're at penn station together he he says it <laughs> um, and even that older story has some elements that still resonate today There is a 2019 article by Michael Kimmelman, the architecture critic for The New York Times, that's titled, When the old Penn Station was demolished, New York lost its faith. Today's version is humiliating and bewildering. That article explains, quote, demolished more than half a century ago, the former Pennsylvania station by McKim, Mead and White was hardly the first great building in town to face the wrecking ball. The Lennox Library by Richard Morris Hunt and the old Waldorf Astoria by Henry Hardenberg on Fifth Avenue also came down. For generations, New Yorkers embraced the mantra of change, assuming that what replaced a beloved building would probably be as good or better. The Frick Mansion by Carrere and Hastings replaced the Lennox Library. The Empire State Building replaced the old Waldorf. Then a lot of bad modern architecture amid other signs of postwar decline flipped the optimistic narrative. When Penn Station became during the mid 1960s a subterranean rat's maze, the city seemed to be heading very definitely south. The historic preservation movement, which rose from the vandalized station's ashes, was born of a new pessimism. People today forget that the original station's construction, shortly after the turn of the last century, caused its own tumult. Several midtown blocks needed to be leveled, which meant displacing thousands of residents from the largely African-American community and what was once known as the Tenderloin District in Manhattan. The emptied lot awaiting McKim's masterpiece now looks almost comically vast in photographs. The building that opened in 1910, its concourse longer than the, no- uh, the nave of St. Peter's in Rome, its creamy travertine quarried uh, like the ancient coliseums from Tivoli, Tivoli, Its ceiling 138 feet high, its grand staircase nearly as wide as a basketball court, was a beautiful Beaux-Arts fortress, as the architect Vishan Chakrabarti has put it, Um, end quote. So yeah, so this new renovation, the one that's opening, uh, I think it's, I guess, tomorrow for us and a few days ago for anyone listening. Um, It's a penance for that destruction in a lot of ways. But unfortunately, it doesn't actually solve a lot of real-time right-now issues. The Christina Goldbaum New York Times article that I was originally quoting explains that, quote, the Moynihan Hall caters primarily to Amtrak passengers who account for just 5% of Penn Station's uh, 650,000 weekday riders and will board and exit trains through the new, uh, who will board and exit trains to the new waiting area. Long Island Railroad commuters will be able to get to trains from the new hall, but officials expect most of them to continue to use the older Penn Station. And also, quote: The new hall also does not solve Penn Station's fundamental problem—a lack of capacity. In recent years, growing ridership to the commuter rail and subway lines that serve the station has clogged platforms and passageways with bottlenecks. While the new hall will relieve some of the strain by moving desi- uh, the designated waiting area for all Amtrak trains out of Penn Station and turning that concourse into a uh, New Jersey Transit boarding area. More trains, tracks and platforms are needed to truly thin the station's crowds, officials said, end quote. Um, And to be fair, the article does explain that some uh, there have been proposed infrastructure work uh, to address those issues, but they require federal funding. And apparently, quote, the plans have been mired in a political standoff between President Trump and Democratic leaders for the past four years, obviously. Um, So here's hoping that Biden helps move things along for the people that use Penn Station on a daily basis. And that is the end of my story.
2: <laughs> did you mention who this Moynihan thing is named after?
1: I did not. Is that something you know or should I quickly I look that up? I was
2: wondering if it was about as in like the Moynihan report, like you know that infamous report that was done that um pathologized black families. I mean, I know, like, no. it's, more, it's a very common last name, but it's just whenever I hear Moynihan, I think right? It, um.
1: Oh, shit. Well, no, I think, I think I remember seeing it was named after a senator, I think, who was involved in getting it, um, like, moving it through, uh, la la la.
2: So, like, a recent Moynihan, because Moy- the Moynihan I'm thinking about is dead. Like he wrote right. the report is from 65. But when I see that mm-hmm. name, that's my immediate reaction.
1: But yeah, no, I, I actually, I don't, uh, oh, it's okay. It's, it's named for the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Yeah, that's, that's the one. That's the one. Is that the same guy? <laughs> yeah. <That's> the one. <laughs> <laughs> is it really?
2: Yeah. The, it's like the Negro family. You know, a lot of people <gasps> think it as like gospel that, you know, the prop, the Negro Family, the case for national action, commonly known as the Moynihan Report. It was a report on black poverty in the U.S. and he argued that the rise of black single mother families was caused not by <gasps> a lot of jobs but by a destructive vein in <laughs> the culture. See, I knew it was him. What I, the the I was like, I think it's that, that
3: Moynihan.
2: So what
1: he- that? that's
2: crazy who let that happen it's not only you know this fancy thing for Amtrak people and fuck all the subway riders right oh my god named after the Moynihan
1: Jesus Christ (laughs) that's fucking unbelievable
2: people look google it
1: i'm I'm literally googling <laughs> right now that's fucking unbelievable i'm also shocked that none of that article didn't mention it at all i mean maybe i'm not shocked i don't know seems like it, a, someone they had to have, have
2: known probably
1: i don't know that's crazy or maybe it said it and i just was skimming too fast that's wild but jesus
2: yeah, commuter shit, like yeah um, yeah
1: yeah Yeah. Have you guys done that? Have you guys had to commute through Penn station? Like on, I had to do it for like, well, I mean, let me think. I had to do it when I was commuting or commuting from New Jersey. That's how I go. And I've had to do that like on and off for various time periods the last few years. And it's, it's hell.
0: (laughs) It sucks. It's a lot not to go to Jersey, but I work near Penn Station, so I've mm-hmm. often sometimes I just like walk down to 23rd Street to avoid all the chaos. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. I mean, right, it's insane up there.
1: Yeah, that's true. You don't have to even be commuting from out like NJ Transit. Like, I've also, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, wow. I
2: haven't taken it like, um, as a regular commuter that often. Like, I'm familiar with it, but, um, my shitty connection spot was always um Times square like I've had commutes where I had to go through there but not so much Penn Station
1: Hmm. yeah yeah Penn State I mean it's just it's yeah I mean were you guys did you guys know about I, it's like one of those stories that's like a very New York story about the, like the knocking down of the old Penn Station did you guys know about
0: that before I didn't No, it it adds, it makes it it down. I know they've been doing construction over there for a long time, so I didn't know exactly what they were doing, but yeah, I'd be interested to see what it looks like now. Yeah, the old one, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, so the, yeah, I remember the the construction's been going on there for a long time. That's absolutely right. Um, but yeah, like knowing about the old history and that it used to be as nice as Grand Central, like makes it even worse to be down there every day and like the low ceiling, like down in stairs area. Um, yeah it's it's trash and apparently that part hasn't actually changed at all which is frustrating it is frustrating that they would cater to the Amtrak passengers before the commuters um but also Uh, makes sense
2: yeah I think that it's it's not exactly the same thing but it reminds me of um all the different cosmetic improvements to the the subway system that weren't really about service. It's mm-hmm. like you're making it look nicer in certain stations and stuff with internet and all like kiosk and shiny things. But you know who who does that serve? Like who feels better because they see that, and who is not being helped because stuff still isn't running on time or it's mm-hmm. still not in good repair.
1: Hmm. You know? Yep. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. By the time we all uh, get to see
0: the damn thing, it's going to be a while uh, since we're probably quarantined. It's going to be a while before we can see anything. But yeah, I mean, that's there.
1: Yeah, there's um like part of the story could be seen as like ironic in the sense where like, you know, oh, it's it's getting it's finishing up at a time where like ridership's already so much more reduced than it used to be. But the article, like, you know, like everyone's involved is spinning it as like, well, like looking towards the future and like, here's to a better future and all that stuff. So it's like, you can see it from both ways if you're looking at it in that sense. Um, But it is, it is hard to not see it as like, uh, well, first of all, that naming the building after that, dude, it like this in this day and age, I like who let that happen? I'm really, like, shocked.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's so pervasive. Like, we have so many things that are named after people who they choose to remember them for, I guess, whatever good they did. And they completely ignore or downplay <laughs> any destructive shit that they did. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I put that in my Instagram story. I was like, is this Moynihan as in the Moynihan? That mm-hmm. Moynihan? But I didn't look into it further
1: hmm yeah I had I had no idea that's wild I'm so glad that you had that knowledge to put out there because that's great cr- I mean like it's in a day and age when people are literally like renaming buildings after presidents because those presidents were racist assholes right like and they're gonna let this happen is really strange to me um but yeah I guess it'll be pretty I don't know
0: beauty hurts right <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for that story, Emily. Definitely an interesting update. We're going to go ahead and jump right into our first musical break today. The first one is a great throwback. This is Sade with Cherish Today. We'll be right back.
3: No the i the
0: Back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our next segment, we'll have Jasmine.
2: Um, so there's a little announcement from the station before I go into this, my national story. So if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com forward slash New York City and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m eastern standard time on instagram.com forward slash city running tours. Okay so for the national news story this was something that was pretty disturbing that took place on Christmas but it was I'm not going to say it was completely buried by the news, but I don't think it got as much attention as it should have. Um, this information is from the New York Times. This article was written by Steve Cavendish and Rick Rojas, entitled Nashville Suspect's Girlfriend Told Police Last Year that He Was Making Bombs. So the girlfriend of the man who authorities say set off a bomb in downtown Nashville on Christmas Had called police officers to his home last year, claiming that he had been making bombs in the RV parked there, according to a police incident report. A lawyer for the girlfriend, according to the document filed with the Metro Nashville Police Department, told cops that her boyfriend, Anthony Warner, frequently talks about the military and bomb making. This call was reported to the police on Tuesday by the Tennessean and WTVF. uh, slash tv a nashville station so the girlfriend met with officers at her home on august 21st and officers then went to mr warner's home which was a two-bedroom duplex in the antioch area of nashville the officers claimed that they knocked on the door but quote did not receive an answer The RV, which was identified by state and federal officials as the one that exploded in downtown Nashville, which injured three people and disrupted telecommunications in the region was parked behind a fence. Um, Yeah, officers wrote that they observed several security cameras and wires attached to an alarm sign on the front door. Don Aaron, who's a spokesperson for the police department said in the statement that at the time police saw no evidence of a crime and had no authority to enter his home or fenced property. The girlfriend's lawyer also represented Mr. Warner according to this article uh, and according to what the police said and told officers later that he, quote, would not allow his client to permit a visual inspection of the RV. The report, which was dated August 21st of last year, noted that the officers who responded to the call notified their superiors within the police department. Don Aaron, the spokesperson, said that the police forwarded the incident report and Mr. Warner's information to the FBI, which said on Tuesday that it and the Defense Department found no records on Mr. Warner after receiving a request from the police on August 22nd. Bob Mendez, who's a member of the city council criticized the police on Tuesday night for not earlier revealing their visit to Mr Warner's home, he said that when officers kill someone the department distributes photos of any weapons found near the victim within hours. So um, the explosion in the city disrupted things like 911 call centers, hospitals, and cell service in several states. Um, And it took the police five years to mention this prior connection. Um, In the news conference before Tuesday's revelations of this past incident, law enforcement officials said Mr. Warner had not had their attention before the attack. His record had just one arrest, a 1978 marijuana possession charge when he was 21. And this is from a a local site, The Tennessean, written by Natalie Allison. So police were called by the girlfriend's attorney, whose name is Raymond Thottmorton III, And the attorney was worried about comments that she made. And when the police arrived, they found the girlfriend sitting on the porch with two unloaded guns. She told them that the guns belonged to a Tony Warner and that she did not want them in the house any longer. And while at the house, the woman told police about the bomb comments Warner had made. Thockmorton, who's the the attorney, again, told officers that Warner frequently talks about the military and bomb making. She also told the attorney Warner knows what he is doing and is capable of making a bomb. In an interview Tuesday night, Thockmorton told the Tennessean he urged police at the time to look into the woman's claim. He said she feared for her safety, believing Warner may harm her. But according to the police report in Morton, the woman was experiencing a mental health crisis at the time. Officers called their mobile crisis division, and after talking with the woman, she agreed to be transported by ambulance for a psychological evaluation. So that's some of the, that's the backstory, but, you know, you continue to hear the local police saying he wasn't on our radar when this happened, so... Yeah, I just, I thought it was um, disturbing, but also not all that surprising because there's so many people that will pop up and do like a mass shooting or a bombing or something. And then you find out later they have some kind of a history that was reported of threatening women or some kind of domestic disturbance, like um, that men's right act. The activist lawyer who shot Judge um, Esther Salas, her son and her husband, earlier this year, like Elliot Rodger. Like, I think something like 60% of um, mass shootings in the past five years, the people who are responsible have some kind of a history of having... um, like abuse someone or they were reported to police for stalking threats, something like that, but it wasn't resolved before, you know, they did something extremely violent.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, yeah, it's upsetting. And it, it makes you wonder like, like, like what is not happening that needs to happen right like where is because it, it does happen a lot Jasmine you're absolutely right and it's you know I'm not the person doing that job so I don't know where it's falling these things are falling through the cracks but like you know
0: yeah I just feel like there's like so many lacks and just like um service for people who go through trauma whether they are committing crimes or experiencing them you know not to put people who do bombings or, you know, do any sort of mass destruction into some white light. I'm just saying that a lot of times if it's a repeated defender, offender, you know, they either didn't get the resources, they didn't have support, you know, um, or they just, you know, never, nobody ever gave them a a way to figure out what to do. You know, a lot of times they just don't know where to turn. And it's awful when you, you can look back over and see where it, you know, where it generated from that it's almost building, you know.
2: Yeah, I don't even know. I'm not aware as of yet what this person's motives were or what I did see, like, one of his neighbors mentioned that um, was on uh, the Associated Press. He said he just casually was like, oh, is Santa bringing you anything for Christmas this year? And the bomber said, like, oh, like, the world in the city, like, they're not going to forget me or something. And the per- the neighbor didn't think it was something like this this man was talking about. <laughs> you know God,
1: what a haunting I mean, thing
2: yeah to you know look and back on.
0: like and that's I'm what he has at- to remember like oof, that's a lot
2: yeah I'm. Look- I'm looking at the stat now from Bloomberg it says deadliest mass shootings are often preceded by violence at home I know this wasn't a shooting but An analysis of uh, 749 mass shootings over the past six years found that 60% were either domestic violence attacks or committed by men with histories of domestic violence. And we know that the stats are also pretty high within police forces of um, violence against women or domestic abuse. So I just, I also find it interesting how you have this incident where a woman is saying from her own mouth, This man is making a bomb. He has guns in the house. I don't feel safe. He's going to attack me. And it's like, oh, nothing we could do. And then we talk on this show about people who, you know, let it be someone that they think was selling drugs or whatever, and they can knock down your door and do all this crazy shit when you haven't done anything. But the response for her is, oh, Mm -hmm. she's, she's having a mental health crisis. Or, oh it didn't seem like it's that bad mm. like what part of he's making bombs is not mm. alarming you know is, was
1: this guy white uh,
2: do you have to ask i know i just want to confirm yeah. before
1: i say my next yeah, statement yeah, which yeah. is <laughs> there's yeah, a lot of yeah, yeah. you're at, there's racial elements and there's gender elements in here for sure we uh you know as a society we don't take women's concerns seriously often when it comes to their domestic partners um and their fears for their safety and yeah and white men you know if this was a a brown person that was you know being accused of making a bomb um there might have been more action yeah
2: I mean, I'm sure there would have been. There would have been a whole, like, operation to, like, a sting or something. Or he... It's just so shocking for... If someone says, this person is making bombs, that's, like, big, giant red flag. And you... And then to see them say, like, he wasn't on our radar. We just... We didn't have a reason to go into the house. We didn't Mm -hmm. have a... You know, and, like, to... um to teresa's point about i don't know what type of health issues he had going on but this person was also like recently quit sold all of his stuff or was giving it away oh yeah which is like a classic red flag red flag for that like if someone and that you know is like suddenly getting rid of about a lot of stuff like there might you might have to intervene but i really think it's like you see this person and because he's a white guy, it's like, oh, like he's he's just having a hard time. Oh, he's just a little strange. Right. You know, And then you, you hear about things like what happened with Breonna Taylor or the yeah. black woman in Chicago who was attacked recently by the police. You know, it's like, where is that same like, oh, we're we're not really sure anything serious is going on.
1: Yeah, um, and you and the there's the racial element, and then we already mentioned the the gender element too. And you said that she had a history of mental health illness, or was it just I like I, I heard not a little not bit that of she
2: a... had a history of it, but the yeah. Tennessean article said that according to the police and her lawyer, they said that she was experiencing a mental health crisis, and they had some like a crisis unit come. Hmm. like take her away for evaluation and i'm thinking if i'm living with somebody yep. where I think my life is in danger because he's talking about bombs yeah i'm gonna be upset i'm gonna be you know maybe that manifested in a way where they're like oh she's hysterical
1: mm-hmm. i was blah, gonna blah, say blah. Yep. I was going to say the same thing. If I was living with a guy making bombs, I would also be having a mental health crisis. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we're not there. So maybe she was having a separate issue. I, I, who knows? But like, true. Yeah. 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 But, but there is, you know, I mean, there's, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. There's a long history of, of saying women are hysterical when they're upset about stuff and just dismissing their concerns In in the world, in this country, in the world, Anyway,
0: yeah. I often wonder, yeah, like, I mean, during the pandemic, how how often they get calls like this because people are at home so much more. You know, I know definitely oh, in my neighborhood I've noticed there's been a lot more domestic violence that I can see. You know, like shit spilling oh, yeah. out in the street because there's nowhere to go. So, mm. you know, for, for this sort of quarantine situation, it's not the best for everyone. To not be able to have that balance. And I wonder, you know, since we've been on lockdown, like, what's the frequency of these calls? And how serious mm-hmm. do they take them? You know, is there any smarter measures they're using to kind of dictate who really needs help? Or, you know what I mean? I mean, I guess we can't really scale yeah, it. But I'm sure there's no, been an, but increase, an uptick of calls you know, since we've been at home.
1: There is absolutely, Teresa. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I mem- I've been reading on and off throughout the year that there's absolutely been an uptick, w- and w- however they measure or are able to measure that, an uptick, an uptick in domestic violence incidents. But, uh, abs- you're absolutely right. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, this happened with the phone call to warn the police happened long before corona, but it is true that there has been an uptick for sure. Like People are whereas maybe you used to be able to go to school or go to your job and kind of have some escape or some kind of pressure to release like you don't have that anymore but it looks like this person for a while he was just completely alone like already kind of a loner and doing whatever but i guess maybe he was super alone with his thoughts in the past few months to come up with this on christmas you know and now that he's dead I don't we who knows if we'll ever find out what his real motivation was
0: yeah man um wow oh so a lot to consider you know it's just like any uh, at any given moment during this whole lockdown situation with everything that you have to see and everything you have to deal with you know a lot of people are just like not in a good space not in their right minds and it's, you know, it's just, it's like, we can't even help everyone, you know, I would think that with some of these, like, sort of um things they're doing far as like giving us some sort of help from the government, I, there hasn't been, I don't, I haven't seen like a huge push towards just like, um, mental, aware, mental health awareness, since like the beginning of the pandemic. But like now, you know, it's been sustained all this time. It's almost like, where is that sort of uh, support? Because I feel like people are going through it probably now, especially with the holidays, more than they were before. So, but you never do know, you know. That was definitely a very interesting story. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for bringing that to light. We're going to go ahead and hop into our next musical break. Uh, this track is the Robert Glasper experiment featuring Stokely Williams, and it's called Why Do We Try? We'll be right back. <laughs> back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll jump into our world news segment. Uh, today's story is drawn from a story on CNN.com. Um, the authors of that story are, sorry, um, Helen Reagan and Rebecca Wright, and also an interview on Al Jazeera um, that featured a uh, Rohingya, Rohingya activist, Yasmin Yula and also a few other people that are in the center of the conflict. Um, So the story is basically based in Bangladesh, and it is about the Rohingya people. About 1,000 Rohingya refugees, members of a Muslim minority who fled neighboring Myanmar to escape violence, have been moved to a flood-prone island in the next few days after Bangladesh relocated more than 1,600 earlier this month. The Bangladeshi government says the relocations are voluntary, though human rights groups say people are being coerced to move to the island where the conditions are so poor it may lead to a new crisis. It has been difficult for them to gain access to the island. The Bangladeshi government has spent years constructing a network of shelters on the island to accommodate up to 100,000 people currently living there um, in their sprawling refugee camp that they call Cox Bazaar. Each shelter can accommodate 800 to 1,000 people, and each family will have a 12-foot by 14-foot unit with bunk beds. The shelters have been built 14 feet above ground level in case of cyclones, so they say, and they will withstand winds up to 161 miles per hour. There is also two 20-bed hospitals, as well as community clinics and on-site medical staff and three schools. But human rights groups and and the refugees themselves have long expressed concerns over the safety of the uninhibited low-lying island, as it has often become partially submerged during a monsoon season and is vulnerable to cyclones. Human Rights Watch has described the conditions on the island as poor, with Rohingya uh, people likely facing a lack of adequate medical care. The group has also expressed concerns that the refugees there could be denied freedom of movement, sustainable livelihoods, or education. So it is unclear what role, if any, humanitarian agencies will be allowed to play there. In a statement, Refugee International said the relocation was short-sighted and inhumane. Um, A senior rights advocate named Daniel Sullivan, he also stated, without appropriate assessment and adequate information for refugees about conditions on the island, the move is nothing short of dangerous. Um, of a dangerous mass detention of Rohingya people and a violation of international human rights. Many of the refugees fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh to escape violent military crackdown in 2017, which led to the International Court of Justice in The Hague to order Myanmar to protect the Rohingya population from acts of genocide. Myanmar denies the genocide accusations and maintains that, quote, clearance operations, by the military were legitimate counter counterterrorism measures. The United Nations said in a statement that it is not involved in the preparations that have been given limited information on the relocation. Uh, it has also not been given access to the island to carry out safety and technical assessments. So this is really sad, um, my overall, You know, I've spoken about the Rohingya people often before, um, how I don't believe that we have refugees in 2020. Um, However, you know, what the saddest part about their story to me is that they don't have a voice in the decision-making process of where they're supposed to be. The fate of their lives is depending on all these other people, and it seems as though they're not even including them on the conversation. You know, in this story, it talks about how some um, of the refugees are being coaxed to go there um, the Fortified Rights reported that some Rohingyas in Cox Bazaar's camp had been told by unelected Rohingya camp leaders that they could be first in line for rep- repatriation to Myanmar if they went on this voyage. So, you know, there's a lot of mixed language here, but to me, it sounds like they're secluding them and just continuing this sort of, you know, ethnic cleansing um practices that That were occurring in this population before all of this went down. um so your thoughts, ladies?
1: yeah, i it's it's very upsetting to hear, I mean about the displacement of a minority population, um, their refugee status, and then on top, you know, refugee refugee camps and refugee areas are often rough places, um, but to have the added I don't know if trauma is the word. I don't know, but to like go to this like deserted island that's like in like you know not super ha- inhabitable is is really upsetting to hear about.
2: Yeah, it makes me think of especially with climate change. You already have mm-hmm. a lot of places um, in certain parts of the world that are more susceptible, and then you have a group like the Rohingya. Who are being removed from places that are already kind of high risk for like a lot of floods and things like that, and then being forced into an even more dangerous environment? It's really, it's a, it's incredibly bleak. Yeah, like I don't it, even really know what to say.
1: Yeah, your point about how climate crisis is gonna—I don't have the stats in front of me right now, but you know, you keep seeing headlines about who the climate crisis will affect in the coming years and what the, the forced displacement that alone is going to cause on top of forced displacements that happen because of human, you know, control or lack thereof. Um, and it is, it's scary. It's for sure scary.
0: Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, it's hard for us to even consider you know, for me, I'll speak for myself to so even consider what's that's what that's like, you know, constantly being displaced and you're almost, you know, in this um this interview that I watched Uh, They were really just interviewing people on the ground and some of them were just leaving, just hoping that it would be less crowded and better than the situation they were in and begin, But they have no idea what they're moving towards. Um, You know, they're trying to build communities with them themselves. But it's just such a desolate situation, um, especially for all the children who are growing up in this and may not ever be able to escape. Um, It's just really sad. So definitely want to send some prayers up for the Rohingya people and hope that in the new year we can find better solutions than just chartering people off to (laughs) islands in the middle of the ocean um yeah it's disheartening so
3: Mm
0: -hmm. without further ado Emily can you please give us some good news
1: (laughs) yeah sort of so um I really wanted to do this story it's more like a weird news story than like explicitly good but like it's pretty cool and definitely not bad i don't think um so it comes from a november 11th national geographic article by douglas main titled uh we knew platypuses were incredible now we know that they glow too um which is so interesting. Also shout out to some college friends who tuned me into the story. Um so the article explains, quote, "The platypus is one of the planet's strangest creatures on several counts. Uh though mammals, these Australian natives lay eggs and sport venomous spines on their rear legs. They also have beaver-like tails and duck-like bills." Uh, the latter of which they use to sense prey while hunting at night with their eyes closed. What do Uh, they hunt? I don't (laughs) know. This is used to me. Yeah, girl, it's wild. Uh, (laughs) Now scientists have found yet another odd trait to add to the list, fluorescent fur. In a recent study published in the journal Mammalia, scientists found that when they illuminated, then when illuminated by ultraviolet UV light, a spectrum of light not visible to human eyes, the pelts of, plat- of platypuses give off a blue green glow, which is so interesting. So basically they're biofluorescent and no one knows why uh, it could be something to do with camouflage from predators who can see UV light. Um, Or it could be like a vestigial trait that no longer serves any purpose. Um, And I was pretty proud of myself for remembering the word vestigial last night from high school bio because that just popped into my head. I haven't used that word in a long time. Um, So they're also not the only animal to be recently discovered with this really cool trait either. Um, The article explains that a mammologist in Wisconsin discovered in 2019 that under UV light, flying squirrel belly fur gives off a pink glow. Um, which is sort of how they were like, oh, I wonder if, if platypuses do this too. And that they do. Um, yeah, platypuses are wild. What do they eat, Jasmine? Let's find out. Um, I didn't know they were hunting things. I mean, I, I, just, I,
2: <laughs> I, thought, I thought they, they ate, ate like,
1: fish. I mean, okay, maybe they, so they eat, okay, <laughs> according to environmental.d, the first Google search I did, um, they eat in- insect larvae, freshwater shrimps, and crayfish. Okay.
0: Okay. I, think, I knew they was eating some fish. They seem like a fishy type of bird. A fishy type I of thought thing. They
2: were like, I thought they rooted around in the mud for like, oh, I don't uh, know, like greens or something i don't know I didn't yeah. <laughs>
1: anyway they're cute as hell i'm looking at photos of them right now um but they're also i just remember being so like learn in bio like elementary school right and like we're learning okay so male like you know birds lay eggs and and mammals have live babies but the platypus <laughs> is an exception to this rule and we're just like why why um it's they're so interesting I think they. I love it.
2: I have been a an normal, loving
1: yes. person
2: since forever. I like all the weird things as long as they don't scare me. I think it's amazing.
1: Ugh, I love that as a rule. Um, I also I just love remember anything that. that
2: glows, so I'm with you. Yeah. that. anything <laughs> okay. that glows. It doesn't <laughs> have to have. Why does it have to have a reason? Right. <laughs> I mean, it
1: doesn't <laughs> because they're just beautiful. Right? Um. Yes. I just remembered that actually we we're learning about the platypuses too is that apparently the the first explorer you know western explorers that discovered them thought it was like a fake animal that had been like stitched together like cause I think they found what? like a dead one first or something like that yeah they like they're like I don't know what this is but it's not real no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's they're so cool <laughs> that
2: reminds me of my grandma hi grandma I know she's Hi. She's from a small town um, down south, and years ago, like in the fifties or the forties, some way somehow an armadillo had gotten up there, mm. and no one in the town had seen it. So someone <laughs> went and got like a garbage can and put it on top, and was like, "What the hell is this?" And the paper came and was like, a, "Like a new creature." That's awesome. So, like, like it came up from armadillo. Texas, probably. I mean, because you know, like people stuff will fall you know you t- talk about something falling off of the back of a turnip truck like things people will travel and like animals will travel with them or like the seeds for plant and then mm-hmm. next thing you know you have a population that's moved
0: you have like a little dark platypus
2: yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah
0: or
2: armadillo, platypuses no, are real.
1: They're so great, and they're so cute. On top of everything else, they get to be cute. So, like, yeah, they what a world!
2: Beavers, which are also a favor, a favorite of mine.
1: Yes, beavers. Uh, yes, they're the big. Uh, the beaver hat industry was huge in the 1600s. And oh, that got dark. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just, I studied. That's like New Jersey history that we learn in school. Oof. sorry yeah. no, not platypus you. hats no platypus hats though
2: <laughs> yeah, i mean but you would have a glowing head
1: cool only if you saw uv light though which is you know sunburn style it's so interesting or the
2: animals could see you yeah
1: like maybe they could
2: see I other mean. things but if you're wearing the, a, a platypus pelt be cool. like, oh, wow look Ooh. at this
1: yeah like there's like maybe like there's certain animals that see like like predators so it's like or like I guess yeah so like maybe they blend in with the wall I don't know I I'm really just making up science
0: right now (laughs) (laughs) that works too well that was a fun story thank you Emily no problem guys all right so we are about to go ahead and get up out of here Jasmine you want to let our listeners know where they can find us on social media
2: sure i almost forgot to have the link up but you didn't catch me quite yet slipping (laughs) so the facebook page is facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram page is at objection to the rule again no spaces no special characters nothing so we put up links to the stories that we discuss and like other things that might be relevant. You know, we can only talk about so much in the course of one hour every week. There's so much going on, but we try to keep you updated on what we talk about and put related information up there as well. So please follow, subscribe, do the thing and uh, happy new year.
0: Happy New Year. Happy New Year, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to Objection to the Rule. 2020 was a great year for our show. We just really appreciate all of the support. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. And please continue to listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We have one more track for you today, and it's a banger. This track is called Entrepreneurs by Pharrell Williams featuring Jay-Z. We'll see you next week. Happy New Year. Bye. Happy New Bye. Year.
2: Happy New Year.
3: Hey. Woo, We're black. We're always whispering. Woop. I can't tell a meal. Woop. Woop. we will in woo. You want to be let out of here? You're welcome to go. Woo, Woop. 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 Two foobals, sipping cripper, Kona, yeah. consumer Ooh. and a owner. Ooh. Two E-R, verdict, we all vertically integrated Ooh. from the flower. Do say power, sip ace till I throw up. Like gang signs, step I bang minds for both you. Yeah. Serial entrepreneur, we on our own. Stop sitting around waiting for folks to throw you a bone. If you can't buy the building, at least stock the shelf. Then keep on stacking till you stocking for yourself. Uh. See everything you place at the black. It's too small a term to completely describe the act. Black nation, black, build a black entrepreneur. You want no, the press I like excellent. on the ball, love.